Well, four years ago, AAA, the American Automobile Association, you know, the, the people you can become a member of, and if your car breaks down, they'll come tow you wherever you need to go. AAA did a survey asking American drivers a number of questions, but the most important question they asked were, are you a careful driver? Now, before I tell you the results, just for fun, let's do the same survey here. Show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself a careful driver? You can hold them high. I, 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 all right, I think the vast majority of us would say we're careful. All right, well, in 2017, when they asked this question, 83% of Americans said, yes, I consider myself somewhat or, uh, or, or much more careful compared to the other drivers that I encounter. 83% of the people on the road said they are more careful than most everybody else on the road. Does that number seem a little bit high to you? A little bit. The math doesn't work if you think about it. Now, very young drivers were the most confident about this. Check this out. Let me say it this way. 99.8% of 16 to 18-year-olds said they were more careful than anyone else. Do you believe that could even be true? Maybe. Maybe since they finished driver's ed most recently and had to pass all the tests, maybe they've got it up here. But point being, whether it's 83% or 99.8%, almost everyone thought that they were more careful than everyone else, which is not mathematically possible, but it says something about how we regard ourselves. Now, what makes this all the more interesting, they asked at least two more questions how many of you have texted while driving in the past month? I will not ask you to raise your hands on that one. One third of the drivers admitted that they had done this. And then they asked, how many of you have sped 15 miles an hour above the speed limit or, or more? And 50% half admitted to having done that, depending on your age. 83% of us to 99.8% of us consider ourselves careful 50% of us do some not-so-careful things. And I bring it up this morning not to shame you about your driving, and that's not really the point. I'll admit to going well above 15 miles over. I bring it up because, again, this reveals something about how we think of ourselves. N not just our blind spots or our, our tendencies to rationalize and self-justify our behavior. It reveals that pretty much everybody we have this thing that the Bible talks about in us called pride, where we look at other people and then we look at ourselves and we compare and we think we're better, stronger, faster, morally superior pride when we compare and think that we come out on top or at least in the top half or top-ish, top adjacent. Is that a thing? No. Pride is an interesting word, especially in 2021. Pride has become a word that we have embraced as a good thing. You may be proud to be an American. You may not. All sorts of groups take pride in who they are. And that's different from the kind of pride that we're talking about today. That pride is about not being ashamed of something or even, even celebrating somebody's unique identity or a group's collective identity and culture. So pride can be a good thing, but the pride that we see talked about in the Bible is a whole different thing. When the Bible talks about pride, it talks about superiority and conceit and arrogance and hubris. And church tradition, tradition actually describes it as one of the seven deadly sins. In fact, some call pride the deadliest of all. And my guess is it is something that everyone 
Everyone, even people with very low self-esteem, pride is something we all deal with. The crazy thing about pride is you can think very low of yourself and still somehow be very proud. This is a picture of a puffer fish or uh, what we sometimes call a blowfish. Puffer fish, really interesting. They can inflate to avoid you know, predators in the, in the ocean. They're not very good swimmers. So what they do, they fill their elastic stomachs with a little bit of water, sometimes air, and they can blow themselves up to three times their size. Can you imagine as a human if you could just blow yourself up to three times your size on your command? But, but it's not just blowing up that they have as a protection. Puffer fish contain a toxic substance that makes them taste really bad. And it's actually very deadly to other fish, and it's deadly to humans. This toxin to humans, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There is enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans. And there is no antidote. Yes, the puffer fish have this really cool ability to make itself larger than life, and what comes with it is a poison that can kill everything around it. Well, like pufferfish, I think that we have the ability to blow ourselves up with pride and with arrogance, to think of ourselves and make ourselves look bigger than we are. And like pufferfish, when we do it, I think we can release a poison that is so toxic, it can be toxic to a marriage and, and to your kids and to a friendship and to your church. And I, I think sometimes this pride shows itself in our faith. In fact, I think actually as much as the Bible speaks against this kind of pride, pride subversively works its way back into our relationships with our families and, and our work and how we feel about ourselves and our lives. And then it sneaks its way into our relationship with God and how we live out faith. And pride is a forgery that hangs on the wall of the art gallery. Like we said that first week, someone has stolen the real thing that God has for us, and they've replaced it with pride. And, and in case you think that this is not you, let me be clear. All of us, none of us would ever use that word to describe ourselves. Because we know that pride is bad. I'm not proud. But we have bought in. We have believed. We've fallen for this forgery instead of the real thing that God has in mind. And again, today I want to show you why this is a forgery. I want to explain to you why it's so easy to fall for it, why it might be hijacking your faith. And then I want to point you to what the Bible says is the real thing instead. And to do it, I want to begin by telling you about the most elevated God followers in Jesus' culture. Some people who mistook this forgery for the real thing. In ancient Judaism, there was a group of men that took care of all of the rituals for the people of God. They were the ones who led out all the activities at the temple and the tabernacle. Now, when I say rituals, I mean all the things we see in the Old Testament God tell the people to do. The men, the ones who were to carry it out, were called priests. The priests were a group of men who came from the tribe of Levi. When I say that, what I mean is to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. It was hereditary. You couldn't just decide one day you were going to grow up and become a priest. There was something special about you and who you were born into that qualified you to become one. Well, the priests, for pretty much all of Judaism, had been in held, held in high esteem by the people. Lots of status. You get why, right? I mean, these are the ones who are performing all of these rituals. They're going to go to God on your behalf. 
Uh, think about this. Every year, the high priest would be the one who got to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and let God forgive or get God to forgive all the sins of the people. Nobody else could do that. The, the priests were the ones closest to God, and, and people thought God doesn't listen to normal people, only priests. They are our pathway to God. Priests were pretty high up on the status meter that we put here. Well, by the time we get to the New Testament where Jesus is born, something has changed. The Romans, who are running the Roman Empire, they look at this group of people, the Jewish people, and they see that governing them is going to be a challenge. And they come up with this idea, what if we find the people with the most influence, the most respect, the most status, and we cozy up to those people and we give them political power? And of course, the people they look to are the priests. The priests have great influence over the people. So if we can get in with the priests, then we can get them to do our bidding. And they will be our built-in way to control the people. Let's cozy up to the priests. And the priests, who already had lots of power in their positions, they were given political power as well. And with it came more status and more influence and more wealth. Money. Lots of money in this political thing. One of the things that the Romans did was they, they started a supreme court called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 members, and the president of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. And the president got to choose who else was going to be on the supreme court with him, and so he chose mostly priests. Actually, let's update the status meter here a little bit. Even among the priests, there were some with more status than others. The Sanhedrin above that, and then, and then the high priest above that. Every one of them, all of their status continued to climb in the Roman Empire. Now, here's what you've got to know about the time that Jesus comes on the scene. The Sanhedrin was corrupt. The Sanhedrin was not able to lead people the way that they needed to be led or, or the way that God might have had his priests lead the people because the Sanhedrin had been given this political power by Rome. And while they all had this status that someone could, could ever hope for, all it got them was a job doing whatever the Romans told them to do, making decisions that would serve whatever purpose the Romans needed them to serve at that moment. And what the priests came to realize was that if they wanted to keep their political power and the money and the influence that came with it, they just needed to do whatever Rome told them to do. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the priests are really what we call Hellenizers, which means they're actually promoting and spreading Greek culture as opposed to the Jewish culture one would expect a Jewish priest to promote. In fact, if the Roman Empire is taking over, who's going to keep Judaism alive if not for the priests? But they couldn't resist Rome because they wanted to maintain their status quo. Would you say that with me? Status quo. Things were good for them with their status. It's a great phrase for today, status quo, because status quo means I'm happy with where my status is, and I don't care if it means that I'm subservient to the Romans. I don't care if right now I am a tool of the Romans, because to maintain my status, I got to do what I got to do. What I'm hoping that you're starting to, to get, what I want you to see, is the priests were people of status, but as their status increased, their freedom decreased. Let me, let me say that again. I want to make sure that you, you, that registers. As their status increased, 
their freedom decreased. Yes, they had more money and power. I mean, some of them were on the Supreme Court, and one guy was all the way at the top. But really, really, the higher up they got, the more controlled they were by Rome. And with power and influence came a loss of real opportunity to let God lead them as the priests of his people. And for you, where that matters today, with your status or your power or your position in life, whatever you want to call your place, with it comes a tie to something that is very hard to let go of. Your position always seems to be tied to something. And if you are afraid of losing what you are tied to, then you will live a life that is all about trying to maintain your status quo or improving your status, right? And this is where the forgery came in. Not that people wanted status, because that's just true throughout the history of humanity. Everybody has always wanted to be higher up on that status meter or give their kids a leg up so that they could be higher up on the meter. No, the forgery was this, that status and power are what you get in life as you get closer to God. That they are a reward for a life with God done right. If the priests have been given all of the status and influence and power, it must be because they have followed God so well because they're close to him. You can't get closer to God than a priest. And if I follow God well, then I will be rewarded with status too. What comes with following God is a status and power move. And in, in fact, maybe even one reason to follow God is so that I can increase my status and power. And let me go on further. If I pursue power and, and influence, then I should be admired. Like maybe that should be a goal in my life, power and status and making a name for myself because in our ancient culture, that's how we know that God is smiling on us by giving people power and control and wealth and status. And boy, it is a good thing that nobody falls for that today, huh? Five years ago, the Warriors were in the playoffs, the finals against the Cavaliers, and, and you may remember this one very well. They were up three games to one. No team had ever come back to beat another team that was up 3-1 in the finals. The Warriors were going to win this, no problem. And then some stuff went down. Uh, we don't need to revisit it. Draymond got suspended for what may or may not have been a punch to LeBron James' groin. Uh, Personally, I think LeBron James intentionally tried to use his groin to hit Draymond's hand. Uh, <laughs> tomato, tomato. But the Cavs came back, and they beat the Warriors three games in a row, and they became the new champs. And after the last game, when they were celebrating, the head coach of the Cavs, Tyron Lue, when, when he was asked about the win and LeBron, LeBron James' hard work, he, referring to LeBron, said, great things happen to great people. We won because LeBron James is a great person, and with greatness comes great things. Now, any one of us in a celebration might have said the same thing about one of our teammates, right? N never mind that both teams have great people, and the math just doesn't work when people make statements like that, but, but that's actually a pretty popular thought and sentiment in, in our world today, including in the world of faith. Great things happen to great people, and if you think about it, it's exactly the forgery that I was showing you in the time of Jesus. These priests have gotten wealthy. They've gained stature because they must have been great people. I mean, they're priests. And the way you know you're a great person is when great things happen to you. So Jesus comes along into that world with that forgery. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Now, no doubt you've heard those words before, but, but knowing what you now know about their culture and the priests and this forgery, do they sound a little bit different this time, hear, hearing them again? These were these prominent leaders. They're the ones who've been corrupted. They're trying to control the, the citizens. Let's talk about what Jesus said here, poor in spirit. In ancient Greek, there were a number of different words describing the states of poverty. So if you were, if you were writing about the peasant class, there was a word for it, tapanos. Tapanos referred to 80% of the people who would have been considered peasants. That is not the word used when it says poor in spirit. In Matthew, and actually in Luke as well, they use the word patakas. Um, would you say that with me? Patakas. Patakas is a word used to describe those who were under the peasant class, the lowest of the lows. That word refers to everybody who was considered unclean, those who were expendable. Here's what it literally means. It literally means the very empty ones, those who are crouching. Crouching means it's, it's those who are bent over beggars, the nobodies of their world who have nothing left. And Jesus says, blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is heaven going to be given to the poorest of the poor? All right, real quick. I know you don't come to church to learn grammar, but this is important, what I'm about to show you, because I think that we get these Beatitudes wrong a lot. I want to show you a word. Um, I'm going to circle it, and let's say it together. Uh, circled word, let's all say it right now. Is. It says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lots of times when we read the Beatitudes, especially this verse about the poor in spirit, we read it and we think, wow, blessed are the poor. Someday they will be the ones who get to experience heaven. But is, is not will be. It doesn't say theirs will be the kingdom. It says theirs is the kingdom now. And what Jesus is saying here is those who are the lowest of the low, those with no status, no control, no power, blessed are you or happy are you right now. You are the freest of all. Remember, as status increased, freedom decreased, Jesus says, you are free to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth as God intends. Now, the point of that statement isn't to say, you, listener, go do everything you can to decrease your status. It's to say, do you know who's free to taste heaven right now? The one who doesn't have to spend their life maintaining the status quo. And as I say that, some of you know exactly what that feels like. You are beholden to something. You are tied to it. And you feel like you have to live your life defending your status, your job, your own name, your place in this world, your beliefs. You feel like you're always defending your politics. If I don't defend my way of life, by the way, way of life is another way to say status, then it will get taken away from me from us. If I back down in this argument, if I give in to another person's values or their plans, and Jesus is saying here, isn't it wearying constantly trying to maintain or approve your status quo? And he says, I know, I know you're going to do that anyway. People have been doing that for all of time, but don't make the mistake of thinking that status, more of it will be a reward from heaven. That's a forgery. It's the opposite. 
Heaven is in the hands of those who are not fighting to be higher than everyone else. Let's look at verse 5 for a minute. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. And, and we know that meek means humble and patient. And those who don't think of themselves with big pride and ego. And look at what he says they get. They will inherit the earth. Now, why would he say that? That's, that's a weird thing to come with being meek. That seems like an odd choice. Because in their day, here's why. In their day, if there was a hated group of people, it was the landlords. If you owned land, you either got it by violence or by oppressing someone back then. And if you owned it, it was very likely you were getting paid by your tenants far more than they could afford to pay, which is why 80% of the people were peasants. There was no middle class. And with owning land came status. Like you were in the top 20%, maybe even 10% if you were a landowner. And again, power and control and influence. And Jesus says, those of you without status who are humble, who are gentle, who are meek, someday you will have land of your own. Someday this land will be yours. Both of those verses are about the forgery. Jesus says, you've been taught that the higher up you go, the more God will give you, the more you'll enjoy life, that money buys happiness, and money buys freedom, and status buys power, and it buys control. And because of that, the forgery is that the game of life and the, and the game of faith is all about upward mobility, becoming kind of a big deal. You believe great things are going to happen to great people, and so you are all trying to become great. And Jesus, with these two verses, says, actually, actually, great things happen to bad people and unworthy people and little people and poor people and unrighteous people. Jesus says, you've been looking up at a forgery. Let me give you the real, the original. God wants to give everyone great things, not just great people, everyone. And that means you. And the higher you climb, the less free you will be. And I wonder if today we are still falling for this forgery. Yeah, we know we're supposed to be humble, but even our humility is kind of used these days in connection with status. Have you noticed how every time a politician or a celebrity or an athlete wins an award or they win a prize or they get offered a job or they break a record, they will say this, I quote, I am humbled. If you go on social media, you'll see an actress who's all of a sudden humbled by an outpouring of love from her fans. You'll see comedians who are humbled by people's laughter. You get it. Even normal people like us, we will volunteer to help those in need in our community and we'll post it online and we will say, I was humbled to be able to give food to the needy today. And I see that and I always want to say, you keep using that word. I, I, I do not think the word humbled means what you think that it means. Because you actually seem proud of yourself, hashtagging your humility to advertise your success and your status and your generosity and your moral superiority. And I just want to know, when did humility get so cocky? It, it, it seems to me like we pay homage to humility, even to Jesus' words. Yes, I believe blessed are the meek. And now I will use my meekness to gain a following and status and grow my influence. And I think we see this everywhere, including in the church, including people of faith and leaders in the church. I'm, 
Hudson Armerding, he was a friend of Billy Graham. He was a preacher himself, and he later became a professor, and then he was the president of Wheaton College, where I went to school. And he said this before he died. And, and this is, you know, written a long time ago, but you would think it could be written today. I am persuaded that much of the confusion and conflict which besets the Christian church today is not due to great issues of theology. Instead, it's because brilliant leaders have not been willing to act with meekness. Instead, they have gained a following, and here it is. Here it is, what we've been talking about. They've gained a following. And then to maintain their status quo, to maintain this following, have felt obliged to discredit those who would oppose them. What comes with status and power and control and influence and having a following is the prison of having to do everything you can to maintain your status. You live with the fear of losing the status you have. And in fact, you have to look no further than today's politics for proof of this, right? I mean, is there anyone who makes a decision who is best for the, that is best for the collective people as opposed to the decision that will, that will win them favor with the constituency they need to reelect them? The challenge of political status is, I'm in the position to do the right thing, but if I do the right thing, I will no longer be in this position. Okay, politician, which one's more important to you? I'll tell you, I, I think one of our concerns with meekness is that we're, we're going to get walked on. Teddy Roosevelt, um, he had a pet proverb, you've heard this, speak softly and carry a big stick. What he meant by that was, if the U.S. had a strong military, it could work its will among the nations of the world. But in 1901, he elaborated on that proverb, and he said this, he said, if a man continually blusters, a big stick is not going to save him from trouble. And neither will speaking softly, if in the back of the softness, behind the softness, there does not lie strength and power. If you puff up like a puffer fish, a big stick's going to get you in trouble. And if you speak softly, it is meaningless if within you there is not great power. I like that. When, when, when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he was not saying, you back down to a fight. You don't exert your influence. He was saying, in your meekness lies the strength and the power of God. Do not mistake meek for weak. God shows his power in our humility. What Jesus promises in this passage, for the poor in spirit, for the humble, he's promising freedom. He says you are happy, you are free, no one is controlling you. Your status isn't controlling you. And I'm not saying to throw it all away. I'm just saying don't make the mistake of thinking it's a reward or that it comes with freedom. And he is saying, since you're likely not going to throw away your job, your money, your influence, the position you find yourself in, you can choose to be humble. Like real humility, not hashtag humility. Let me close with this. Uh, Taylor University is a Christian college in Indiana, Taylor. And uh, years ago, they were so excited to learn that a young guy named Sam from Africa, a kid named Sam, was going to be enrolling in their school. This is before it was common for international students to come over here for, for college and, and, and to study. And so Sam was a bright young man with great promise. The school felt honored to have him. Well, when he arrived on campus from Africa, the president of the university took him on a tour showing him every single dorm. They were rolling out the red carpet. Sam, we are so glad you're here. You're going to make us an international school. And when the tour was over, 
the president asked Sam, where would you like to live? Take your pick. And the young man replied, if there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. The president turned away in tears. Over the years, he had welcomed Christians from all over, men and women to the campus. None had ever made such a request. If there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what meekness really looks like. If there is a job that no one wants to do because the status of that job is too low, I'll do that job. If there's a kid that nobody wants to eat with, I'll eat with that kid. If there's a piece of toast that is burnt, I will take that piece. If there's a parking space far from the front door, I will take that space. If there's a hardship that somebody has to endure, I will endure that hardship. If there's a sacrifice that needs to be make, made, I'll take that sacrifice. And that is what Jesus tells you is the most freeing thing you can ever do in your life. It will give you the most free life you could ever have. I, I want to challenge you this week. Jesus is not saying, go become like the beggar. He is saying there is something that person has that you don't. And I want to challenge you this week to reflect on you and look inside you for where you see a quest for status. Where do you see in you a quest for more and more and more? And where does God want you to step into real meekness, real humility? In fact, what, what might God want you to know about the freedom that he's offering you to not have to defend your status quo so hard? Where might he be calling you to start tasting heaven even right now? All right, will you stand with me? Let's pray together before we go. God, how wonderful is it that you are a God that allows us to taste heaven even right now, that you don't say to us, someday, someday you will get this, but you say to us, I will give you some of this even right now. And God, you, you, you've modeled for us in Jesus, who took on humility, who being very much God himself, came and made himself like us, humans in flesh. You've modeled for us what it looks like. And so, God, I ask this week that you open up our eyes to opportunities to make ourselves humble, to not escalate ourselves, to put other people first. And, God, I ask that as we do, you allow us to experience a new freedom from having to maintain and defend everything we've got. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week. So why don't